Welcome to Latin American Intersections, where we explore the intersection of business, geopolitics, and social impact in the Latin American and Caribbean region. Our team is here to bring you the insights you need on current events from leaders and experts in the public, private, academic, and civic sectors. Latin American Intersections is presented by Ozilold Group, a consultancy focused on stakeholder relations and alternative risk reduction, building collaborations across sectors and industries to improve outcomes for clients and communities. Please keep in mind that the opinions, ideas, and information discussed on this podcast are those of the individual host and guest and do not necessarily reflect the official stances of organizations they are affiliated with. Be sure to follow at LATAM Podcast on your social media, share an episode or two with your friends, and send us your questions about the region. And don't forget to rate us on any of your favorite podcast apps. All right, welcome back to Latin American Intersections. I'm Michael Scadden, and I am here today with a very special guest, the managing editor for LATAM Investor Magazine, also known as the UK's only Latin America-focused investment magazine. Uh, I was just mentioning to the managing editor, James McKeague. Is that how you pronounce your name? That is correct. Well done. Very few people pronounce that correctly, even, even <laughs> in my country of Ireland. Very few people get that uh, right. So thanks a lot, Mike. James McKee. Awesome. Now, you won't hurt my feelings if I was actually wrong, but great. James McKee. So we have James McKee here, managing editor again of Zlatam Investor Magazine. Um, as I was telling um, James a little bit earlier, I do reference uh, this his publication on a pretty regular basis in my line of work. Um And I hope that any of you listening will take the opportunity to check it out. Um, lots of great information. And that's one of the reasons that I have brought uh, James on here today. And, and I am very privileged that he is taking the time to go ahead and talk to us. And he is actually talking to us out of Guayaquil, Ecuador, uh, which happens to be uh, something of an epicenter for the COVID-19 Uh, virus in the region. So as far as Latin America goes, Guayaquil has been hit pretty hard um, and is making it into the, uh, the worldwide news at this point. Um, and James happened to be going through there and kind of is on, on lockdown in, in Ecuador at this point, correct? Yes, I, um, I, I'd been in Paraguay for work. Um, I was due to travel back to London, but thought I would take a quick before I did so and basically in the lockdown so things accelerated very very quickly I remember I think I think the first country to close their borders in Latin America if I'm not mistaken were Guatemala and El Salvador and I remember when when they did that I thought that was an extreme action taken by some small countries um, but then pretty soon after everyone else followed suit and Here I am in Ecuador, but given that I'm a Latin America-focused journalist, it probably makes more sense for me to be stuck here and report on what's going on than be in London. Absolutely. I mean, that definitely um, is great to have your eyes kind of on the front line there, um, especially, you know, at some point here in this conversation, we'll probably start 
discussing uh, the risks in terms of uh, you know what risks and threats there are to Latin America trade and the markets in the region. And I mean, you're right there. You're able to kind of see this up front and uh, close and personal. Um, I know that a lot of us have maintained a certain amount of, um, you know, w- uh, we have a lot of questions in regards to both what is happening with this virus and the efficacy of the responses to it um, by governments, um, and, you know, and also by some businesses. So, um James, let me ask you, um, kind of in broad terms, how is coronavirus affecting business in Latin America? So what are some of the most significant issues that you're seeing um, that you and your team have been noticing uh, when it comes to, I guess, you know, as as the the name implies in this podcast, you know, that intersection of of business and policy. And in this case, um, a global pandemic. Um, I guess really there's there's two elements to the answer. So the first element to the answer is the immediate effects of the of the lockdowns and the quarantines and the travel restrictions that were placed in Latin America. And it's actually particularly relevant to Latin America because Latin America um, acted far more quickly than any other region. So with the exception of Brazil and Mexico, and we'll come to them later and discuss them in more detail, but the smaller countries in Latin America reacted far more quickly. So um, let's say Ecuador, where I am now, Ecuador took the decision to close its borders on the 15th of March. On the 15th of March, Ecuador just had 111 confirmed cases of coronavirus and just two deaths. So by way of comparison, um, it decided to, it, it took that lockdown far earlier than Europe, far earlier than China. And it's interesting because lots of commentators praise China and say that China acted strongly, quickly. Well, actually, no. When, when China had uh, 111 cases or when it had two deaths, it was still sending plane loads of people from Wuhan all around the world. So the interesting thing in Latin America is that the governments acted far more quickly. And as fate would have it, I was actually in Paraguay on the week when Paraguay took its first social distancing measure. I was in Paraguay when they closed the schools in Paraguay. And I had, um, it just so happened that that week I was interviewing the Minister of Finance of Paraguay, Benigno Lopez. I was interviewing the Minister of Trade and Industry, Liz Kramer. And I also interviewed the head of the, the central bank, Jose Cantero. And because this was like a breaking situation, I had lots of very interesting chats with, with these senior members of government about, about Paraguay's response. And it really gave me an insight. And you know, what, they, what they basically said to me was, James, if you look at what's happening in Italy and Spain right now, these are countries with well-funded, well-managed health systems. Us, and when they say us, they refer to smaller, poorer Latin American countries, we're, we're going to struggle a lot more with this. And that's why we've had to act quickly. So, so the interesting characteristic in Latin America is that governments took aggressive measures far more quickly than anywhere else in the world. And that obviously has a knock-on effect straight away. Um, the, the first ones to get hit are the restaurants, with the hotels, with the tourist industry, because literally overnight, flights are being cancelled and airports are being closed. Um, 
And then there's all, then there's all of the, the further consequent effects that you would expect. So as soon as Paraguay closed its schools, then half of its workforce had to stay at home and look after the children or find other arrangements. So in answer to your original question, the first impact is immediate, uh, is linked to the quarantine and social distancing measures, and that was felt very, very early on in the cycle in Latin America. Um, the, second, the second impact in Latin America is longer term, and that has to do with exports. So obviously, most of these countries, apart from Mexico, most of these countries, their major export is some form of commodity, some form of raw material. Um, the major buyer of commodities in the world, as we all know, is China. So that means that whether it's Argentina with its soy, or Ecuador with its shrimp, or Chile with its copper, they've already been feeling these effects for, for at least a month now, because China was the first uh, country to really suffer from coronavirus. And as a result, the Chinese economy And as a result, Latin American exports have already been suffering from this. So, so, there's, your two, so there's your two main strands for this answer. And in both cases, Latin America has felt the effects. Of, uh, it had the immediate consequence of the lockdown earlier, and it's also seen its exports get hit earlier. Did I lose you, James? Are you there? Yes. Did you hear the answer? Yes, I did hear that. Okay. Just want to make sure. <laughs> All right. So I guess um, as far as smaller countries go, so going back to what you were saying about the, the smaller countries, they responded to this much quicker. Now, um, I'm in Puerto Rico. It's a U.S. territory, of course, but it was, but as far as the U.S. goes, um, it was one of the first to respond with a uh, almost complete shutdown of businesses uh, a couple of weeks prior to any other state or uh, municipal government in the U.S. Um, and so far, it seems to have minimized the impact of COVID. And I think it's interesting because some of these smaller um, countries, or in this case, territories, they have enough autonomy to make those decisions very quickly, right? Um, they don't necessarily have a, a spread of policymakers that, that all have to weigh in, but rather, you know, smaller circles in government that can kind of make these very rapid decisions, it seems, right? And then, of course, as you were mentioning um, or speaking to this, the, the threshold that they have for health risks is much, much lower considering their healthcare systems, right? So, you know, they're not nearly as interested in, in taking the risks that other countries might, given their size, right? Completely. And, and there's, there's a kind of tragic irony there, is that the reason why they act so quickly is because they haven't got the health systems um, to delay those me measures any further. So in the, in the UK, uh, where, where Latam Investor is based, the government could afford to take its time and could make some early mistakes because ultimately it's got the health system that further down the line can ramp up capacity and can deal with the problem. Right. The Latin American Are there enough beds? Are there enough respirators for, you know, if the curve isn't flattened enough in a particular country, right? Yeah, I, I, I guess they, they, they're very aware of, of the frailties of their own health system and they're aware how long it would take them to ramp up. I mean, 
let's say Ecuador, where I am at the moment, um, there's been a scandal where the, the public health organization in Ecuador has been buying masks, the N95 masks, for $12 per mask. Oh, my God. I mean, these are something that should cost 50 cents, and they've been buying them for $12. So I think they're very conscious as well that when they have to go into the international market and compete for ventilators and masks and protective gowns, they're, they're always going to come last place. So so anyway, sorry, just very brief. No, Jane. The, 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 the bitter paradox there, the bitter paradox is that these countries had to take the measures early because they realize how weak their health systems are. But the paradox is, is that they're also the countries that can sustain the lockdown for the least amount of time. Uh, and I've, I've really seen that firsthand in Ecuador. Um, these, are, these are economies that have underinvested in infrastructure. They've underinvested in technology. So as a result, where, where I'm staying in Ecuador, my drinking water is delivered in a bottle by someone on a motorbike. And I know that's common, that, that's common across Latin America. Now, uh, about a week ago, the guy who delivers my drinking water um, left his job. When I, when I rang for some water, they told me I'd have to come and collect it himself, myself because he's worried about coronavirus and he doesn't want to do it anymore. So because of the lack of infrastructure, because they rely on cheap, low-cost labor for the delivery of basic services, they really can't sustain this lockdown. So that's just one example with the water. Like the same applies for gas. In most parts of the UK, gas is uh, cooking gas, heating gas is delivered by uh, pipe. Here in Latin America, it's not. It's delivered in, it's delivered in bottles. Um, another, another one that's just as important is public security. So Latin America has, I think, of the 50 most dangerous cities in the world, I think 42 are in Latin America. Well, the highest the murder rates Latin- in the world are in, um, are in Central America. And I want to say Brazil was competing with them at some point. I can't remember. Go ahead, though, James. Yeah, Brazil is high. I think Venezuela is high. And the Latin American response to this has been it's like its response to so many problems is to just use its cheap workforce. So the response of Latin America has been to apply is has been to employ an army of private security guards. I think there's there's more than a million, perhaps a million and a half Latin Americans who work as private security guards, a massive amount. Now, what's the problem there? The problem there is that if you have something like coronavirus, where people who earn very little money don't want to come to work, and I don't blame them then these basic services, whether it's water, gas, or public safety, start to deteriorate very, very quickly. So, so, there, so, there, so there's, there's your irony. Um, they, were the, they were the first countries, they, they were very, very early to apply the lockdown, but they're also the countries that can sustain this type of lockdown for the least amount of, of time. Hmm. Um. I think there's some parallels even in the Caribbean at this point. I mean, we keep talking about some of these other countries, but, uh, you know, at least here in Puerto Rico, uh, we are able to hopefully sustain some of this uh, lockdown for a longer period of time. But part of that is because as a U.S. territory, there is access to um, uh, different types of things, federal emergency relief uh, as one example. Um, small and medium businesses are still going to be hit incredibly hard. And there's a lot of wage earners that are being laid off. And so, um, you know, if we extrapolate for the rest of Latin America that don't necessarily have the resources that we do here on this particular island, it's going to be interesting 
well, I, w- I would have to say it's, it's going to be difficult to watch uh, some of the impacts within these smaller countries. Now, um, from where you are, speaking of, of s- small business and innovation, are there some, uh, you know, on the individual level within, and here's the other thing. So, so a lot of these countries have very large populations that participate in the informal economies. Yes. Um, right. So like the, you know, the, 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 the folks selling things at, you know, at the, at the street corners, um, probably even some of those guys delivering water on bikes. Um, you're talking about, uh, there's more jobs within the informal economy or that are taken up within the informal economy than, than almost anywhere else in the world. Right. And, um, I guess my quick question is, have you noticed where you're at if there have been, you know, some innovators out there in this informal economy, this informal space that have taken the opportunity to respond in some way, shape or form to this, to, to operating within this, this new environment of quantum? Um, I mean, in, in terms of, so let's say, that people are just, street sellers, impossible. Completely, completely. I mean, it's not impossible, but yes, completely. The lockdown at the moment, the Ecuadorians have done a very good job of applying this lockdown. So especially in, in neighborhoods where I am, which is um, quite a nice neighborhood, you've got police who are making sure that no one is on the streets who, who should be there, that people are only there. For a specific purpose, so in 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 that in that sense, no, um, there isn't space for let's say some innovative street seller. However, one thing that I have seen um, and regrettably participated in is that there's now a thriving black market for different medical uh, products, different medicines. So let's say there's a shortage of paracetamol. So if you want to get a paracetamol, you often can't get it from the official pharmacy. But you can get it from someone who's of selling course. it four Similar times the price. Similar to the masks that you mentioned um, earlier. There's a black. Yes, and then there's a black market for oxygen tanks. So because the hospitals here are already reaching um, breaking point, the saturation point, they're already full. Lots of people with coronavirus-type symptoms are trying to treat themselves at home, or maybe they're getting their doctor to treat them at home, so they're they're <laughs> having oxygen at home. Um, so yeah, so. I'm not sure if that's quite the positive angle you're looking for about innovative <laughs> entrepreneurs, but there's definitely a well, thriving market. Sim- for, for similarly, goods, one of the workarounds here in Puerto Rico, um, since nothing, no goods can really be sold outside of a, a narrow range of products. And in some ways, I'm okay with it because, you know, the small businesses would be driven completely under in this particular case if Walmart was able to continue selling all goods within its shop. Um, in addition to groceries, right? Um, however, the I've noticed that there's, at least here in Puerto Rico, there's not so much a black market for for health products, uh, but there is a a, a lot of uh, marketplace activity in spaces like Facebook Marketplace, right? A lot of trading going on for different um, types of items that you might not be able to get right now or haven't been able to get for three or four weeks. And we're talking like hardware, computers. Um, there seems to be quite an uptick in online sales. And of course, uh, people here also have pretty decent access to Amazon and, and whatnot. So, you know, 
as far as that goes, there's there's kind of this growing use of these these online and virtual marketplaces to get the kinds of goods or car parts or whatever you might need, um, which I think is a boon here, but may not be readily available in, in other places, right? Um, I want to circle back to the mass price. Do I still have you, James? I know your internet connection might be. So um, yep. Yep. just as, as a little bit of insight, one of the companies that I consult for um, has been uh, working in the um, in the mask space, as it were, uh, connecting vetting and connecting uh, suppliers and buyers and even turning down um, buyers that have come out of the woodwork to uh, buy up whatever capacity of masks they can and then resell them at relatively high rates. And, you know, I was thinking $4 a mask, $6 a mask sounded really high. Uh, but when you're telling me that, that Ecuador is paying 12 uh, with that kind of price gouging going on, I think it's I think there's a level of, of social responsibility um, with some of these sellers that don't that that isn't being mo most basic social responsibility isn't being met um, when it comes to some of these these goods. And we're talking about serious shortage of masks and uh, gowns and all kinds of other items uh, that hospitals need, that uh, major uh, non-government organizations need. Um, I don't know if you had any other thoughts on that. No, I mean, just, just it does make me think of one thing. I was reading an article. So, for example, in the, in the state of New York today, the FBI raided several companies and individuals that were hoarding face masks and basically in, engaging in price, uh, price gouging. So I think it comes back to the capacity and capability of the state. Because let's say in the US, you have government entities that are capable of tackling or at least attempting to tackle that problem. Obviously in Latin America, that, uh, well, no, 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 that's a big generalization. Obviously in, in Ecuador, where I am at the moment, the state doesn't have that ability. And it, it, it touches on, on something broader, which is that in Ecuador at the moment, you get the feeling that the government is just responding. It's just trying to put out fires. And it must be very, very difficult for them because every day brings a fresh problem, whether it's dead bodies on the streets, whether it's hospitals are overflowing with people. So they're really just trying to tackle the worst problems and keep a lid on the situation. Whereas that's a marked difference to more developed countries who have got more capacity, who've got more professional expertise, and are not just putting out immediate problems, but able to also look longer term. So, yeah, that, that would just be my only comment. Okay, good insights. Um, so, I guess, you know, the next thing, let's, let's see if we can put a positive spin on here. Um, I was trying to catch up on some of your articles in regards to uh, Latin America and the coronavirus. Um, Latin America, China, and the coronavirus. Um, in between all of this, uh, one of your articles that came out um, a couple days ago was that uh, the Panama bond issue recreate, creates hope amid coronavirus crisis. Now, um, so I guess the broader question is here. Uh, obviously, we need to, everyone needs to do their part to, to mitigate this pandemic and the threats that it poses. Um, we're going to have to really figure out how to navigate the, the post-corona economy, uh, both regionally and globally, right? Um, but the broader question here is, 
are there now or are there going to be opportunities between all of the threats that this pandemic and the responses pose to trade, to the regional economies, um, and to business in general? I mean, we've talked about some of the impacts on on the informal economy, uh, small businesses. Um, now, in a much broader sense, are there still going to be opportunities on a larger scale um, within Latin American markets, um, such as this, this Panama bond issue, if you want to go into some detail about that, uh, what are the other opportunities that might, that are currently available? Um, you know, and more especially if any of these opportunities help with the crisis at hand. Uh, but of course, any opportunity that's there is going to, you know, hopefully get us in a better position, uh, you know, after this, this pandemic, of course. Anyway, long-winded question of, to ask if there are opportunities between the threats right now. Mike, excellent question. And yes, there are opportunities. Just give me one second. I'm just going to close a window to keep the background noise down. <laughs> Mike, by the way, I can hear, um, I can hear a cop <laughs> in the background. Is that some sort of sophisticated yeah. uh, feature of your podcast app or is that a genuine cop? That is a genuine rooster. Um, that's very common across most Caribbean islands. Um, you have island chickens that wander around everywhere. Um, uh, up until recently, I had a bunch of feral rock chickens living in the rocks behind my house. And so they, of course, caught each other throughout the day. Uh, the one that is crowing right now is a very territorial Easter egg uh, rooster that I acquired from a friend here uh, for my own little, you know, 20 uh, bird egg laying flock that I'm that I'm growing right now. Um, so he seems he seems to have a habit of trying to assert his his authority and his territory on, uh, you know, every few minutes <laughs> right now. Um, well, it's working. He, he's asserted his authority on this podcast. So fair play to him. <laughs> left uh, mark. Mike, just give me a second. I'll be, I'll be back in 10 Okay, seconds. go ahead. Hi, Mike. Um, yes, yeah, so getting back to your question, um, yes, there are opportunities. There, there are definitely opportunities. And just, just in very broad terms, um, obviously coronavirus is causing asset prices to fall. Um, and in, in Latin America, I, I don't want to talk so much about the stock market. I want to talk more about private equity opportunities. Okay. Um, uh, so the, in just in broad general terms, obviously, um, coronavirus around the world is causing asset prices to fall. In Latin America, that is going to be particularly pronounced. And the reason that will be particularly pronounced is that Latin America is particularly susceptible to coronavirus. And that's for all the reasons that we've discussed. Um, the governments, with some exceptions such as Chile, are not really in the, are in the fiscal position uh, the economies aren't in the macroeconomic position to be able to give their their populations much protection against coronavirus. So when we look at the stimulus measures and the, the compensation uh, schemes that we're seeing in the UK or in Europe or the US, obviously they can't do that in, in Latin America. So these uh, they've also got, as we've mentioned, uh, poor health systems. They've got low rates of savings. They've got poor infrastructure. So Latin America is going to be particularly 
uh, hit by coronavirus, which means that asset prices here, the, the fall in asset prices is going to be very, very mild. Um, now, the reason why that's interesting is that there's several of the best investment scenes or investment stories in Latin America are long-term scenes that even though their prices might fall in the wake of coronavirus, their long-term commercial viability will not. So what am I talking about here? I'm talking about mines. I'm talking about uh, oil and gas deposits. I'm talking about infrastructure. Um, a lot a, a lot of the big projects that you see in Latin America are really a play on the US and China, who are some of the world's, um, who are the two, world's two biggest economies, and especially on China, which is with the biggest com commodity buyer. So if you have cash, if, you, if, if you're a private equity company right now and you've got cash, you're going to find some incredible bargains in Latin America over the next six months. And like I say, these projects, although their asset price will, will fall, will tank because of coronavirus, the long-term commercial viability of these projects, if their projects to ship soybeans to China or if their projects to ship um, meat to China, they're going to be viable in the long term. You know, like in 10 years' time, the Chinese population is still going to want soybean and meat and the rest of it. So, so yes, I absolutely think that there are going to be some incredible bargains for private equity companies in Latin America uh, over the next six months to a year. Um, so, this, so that's one. And, and the, the second point I'd like to add is that it's easy for me to say that as a journalist, right? Talk is cheap. I can talk about there being an opportunity. But the, you mentioned our Panama bond story. The reason why that story was interesting was that uh, in, when the coronavirus start, uh, start, when the coronavirus crisis started to pick up steam in February and March, not a single Latin American government issued any sovereign debt. They were all way too nervous. Mexico cancelled the roadshow it was planning. They're all, they're all far too nervous. The fact that Panama was able to issue two and a half billion dollars of debt, that it was three times oversubscribed, that they're paying 4.5% interest. That shows you that there are a lot of investors out there who are looking for opportunities amid this crisis. The fact that Panama, which is going to be, Panama will be hit by this crisis hard because Panama relies on trade with the canal. It relies on travel with its uh, copper airline hub. Panama is going to be hit. It's going to be significantly reduced for a while, yes. Yeah, but the fact that it's able to issue that bond, that the bond is oversubscribed, that it got such low rates, shows you that what I'm saying is not just optimistic words from a journalist, that there is a real appetite right now for investors to look for opportunities in Latin America. It certainly seems so. Hi, James. Do I have you? Yeah, yeah you've got me. Sorry, All I, right. I, I'm not What's that now? Sorry, I, I cut out just as you were beginning to respond. Yes, yes. Okay, so... Um... Uh, we cut out for a minute there. So uh, circling back to that. So one of the, the, the spaces that I, I try to spend a lot of time working in is the uh, agriculture sector in Latin America. It's one of the things that I particularly like to monitor um, what's going on with that. Um, I like to see how smallholders are uh, thriving or being included 
in the you know slowly but surely being included in in their national and you know their national domestic economies as well as the global economy through uh co-ops and um other types of uh trading schemes and uh technology as well um so one of the things that this brings me to um besides the fact that uh um you know, when it comes to to global business, I mean, we can't get away from the fact that Latin America is um, the is a global breadbasket. Right. I mean, we've taught, you know, referring to China, the commodities contracts that they have in place are are probably going to continue to stand. Um, but when we talk about private equity opportunities um, and given the type of terminology that we use, one of the things that I like to circle to is um, social responsibility, right? Um, and, and especially given the type, the, the space that I like to spend time in, like I said, the agriculture sector is, is built upon um, a lot of uh, family farms, smallholders, things like this. Uh, the private equity opportunities in mining, oil and gas probably extend to that sector as well. So as you can imagine, um, you know, I have a, I have a personal interest in, in understanding a little bit what private equity opportunities might exist that aren't necessarily taking advantage of what's happening with the, with coronavirus and the global economy and the regional economy right now, what kind of, you know, how, how can we sort of separate opportunities that are going to exist, um, um, how can I say this, that are, that are going to exist on the back of this because um, small businesses were hurt or, or which from opportunities that will exist um, for everyone to grow? Like, what are the opportunities that might have more social significance and still, um, and still have a good um, return on investment? Does that make sense? Does my question make sense? I'm kind of trying to, it, it, I'm it thinking of this question as I go. <laughs> no, no. no, I think of most of my answers as I go. Um, no, look, it, it does make sense, but I'm not going to answer something that isn't my expertise. The magazine that I work for, Latam Investor, is unashamedly capitalist. Um, and really, my readers are, are UK investors looking for investment opportunities in Latin America. So I've got, I've got to be brutally honest about this. In the wake of coronavirus, Latin America is going to be a bargain basement where, in, where private equity firms, are, or at least the ones that I know in London, are probably not going to be thinking, how can we be inclusive of small business holders and, and help wider society? They'll be looking for great assets at cheap prices. So your question is a good one. I see where, where you're going with it but I'm not the person to answer that. You know, maybe there's some social impact fund or some uh, NGO that would have a much better answer, but. Of course. Now that does come to a question that might, that, that might, that might be more, more pertinent in that particular sense. Right. And that is what kind of risks might be posed to some of these opportunities, given the policy environment uh, that people are going to encounter while looking at some of these um, bargain basement opportunities in the region. Yes, I mean, I mean that's interesting because it's going to be a different, it's going to be a, a different political atmosphere. So let's go back to Ecuador, where I am now. There is huge political pressure mounting 
on the on the government to default on all of its international debts. The government has actually done a very good job. On one hand, it's it's paid some of its obligations. I think a week ago, $250 million or something like that. Uh, and, but then on the other hand, it's also trying to get more funding off the IMF. But yes, we, uh, the in the wake of coronavirus, we're going to see demands for governments here to be much more populist. The default, perhaps, on some of the international debt obligations. And I don't, I don't have the, I don't have the answer here. But if you're looking at potential risks, a potential risk is that a government is forced to raise money in the wake of coronavirus by privatizing assets. So here in Ecuador, for example, you have Petro Ecuador, which is, uh, which is a state energy company that could be privatized and would raise much need funding. The trouble is, if you privatize that in this new populist political atmosphere, there's going to be people will get very annoyed if an international owner starts to repatriate profits, start to take out dividends. So, yeah, I, I think that will be the risk. I, I think that the political atmosphere in the wake of coronavirus will be a lot more populist. And given, you know, and this is a theme that's running through this podcast, given that coronavirus is going to hit Latin America much harder and it, it's going to take these countries much longer to get over it and to deal with it, then the atmosphere here is going to be the very, very populist. So I think, I think that will be the big political risk. Absolutely. And now one of the reasons that I bring up social impact is is in part because specifically because of how those considerations um, can actually reduce those risks and reduce compliance risks, political risks, et cetera. And that's sort of, uh, you know, one of the spaces that I move in is is, uh, you know, helping companies and and uh, investors understand, um, you know, that social impact isn't just necessarily a, a feel good theme. When it comes to investments, um, if people need a reason to do it, it's often because of, you know, uh, situations, uh, this one included, where having a certain amount of consciousness of that, you know, of, of the social impact that you're having may actually help to, to um, bolster investments in some cases and, and ensure their, their longevity, their, their um, um, the re- the returns that they're going to have, and and also the and help mitigate the risks that that everyone's going to be facing, uh, politically, legally, um, and in other terms of compliance, um, as well as socially. Does that make sense? No, you know, what, Michael, that's an excellent point. And just a very brief, in that context, a very brief answer is that if you had to ask me to think off the cuff, I would say mining. Mining is very labor intensive. If you compare mining to oil and gas, a, a mining operation that is making $200 million a year will employ far more people than an oil and gas operation that, is employing, uh, that makes $200 million a year. So I think mining, True. by virtue of being labor intensive, uh, tends to build a lot of local political support, especially when you've got mining companies that bring in local suppliers and caterers. So mining is, is I think, one area. And agriculture is notoriously political. Um, I think that's a fact the world over, uh, but especially in Latin America. In some countries, foreigners are banned from buying land or they're banned from, from buying territory over a certain size. That used to be the case in Argentina. So yeah, very brief answer to your question. I would imagine that mining is one 
natural resource business where because it's so labor intensive, you probably get a bit more political support if you do things the right way. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, just a side note on agriculture. I mean, one theme that I think a lot of, um, you know, and you can catch me on this if I'm wrong, but one of the trends that I've noticed um, both here in Puerto Rico and across the region is that there is um, a fairly large, you know, kind of pushback against um, larger firms uh, handling um, you know, you know, large agribusinesses investing in, in more and more land and a movement towards more um, decentralized food systems, as well as uh, more participation of smallholders and co-ops and the co-ops do fairly well. So, you know, in my opinion, um, that is an example. Um, there's there's a lot of room and there probably will be even more room, you know, bargain basement. Um, prices again to invest in in what might be considered ostensibly um, social responsible socially responsible and in investments, um, but still you're actually investing in the local economy and actually reducing your risks in some ways. Instead of owning a lot of this land uh, directly, which, like you mentioned, in some cases you can't buy anyway. Um, there's lots of opportunities to invest in co-ops um, in um, equipment partnerships, uh, technologies and, and whatnot that are going to be um, diffused across the region. And uh, anyway, a lot of opportunity there within that context. So um, uh, let's see, where were we? <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, I don't mean to go off on these tangents. Um, no, any other thoughts on that, James? Before we get into the um, Chinese Latin America relations question? No, I, I think you summed that up pretty well i mean um yeah i think it's something that are pretty well i mean like you we've seen this trend in the magazine when we talk about it we call it uh, alternative agriculture and what we mean by that is that in the last 20 years if you look at the agricultural exports of most latin american countries you've seen a shift definitely in terms of value if not volume but definitely in terms of value you've seen a big shift whereas 30 years ago the agricultural exports were traditional so let's say banana, coffee, sugar, that's shifted now. And in countries like Peru or the Dominican Republic or Chile, Chile was actually a pioneer in this, you've seen the move to niche value-added agricultural products. So, for True. example, uh, berries, um, instead of normal bananas. Well, I think it really seemed to, that trend really seemed to start with Peru when, uh, with Kenoa at one point. Yes, the, the big, exactly, a big quinoa boom. Um, and in, in Peru, I just happen to have the statistic to hand, over the last 20 years, uh, the value of these alternative exports went up from $350 million a year to about $8 billion a year. So it's, you're talking about the emergence of a massive, nationally significant new export industry so and you see that all over right you go to the dominican republic and there i think it's avocados and organic fair trade chocolates you see it in in guatemala with like what we call in england monge toots and different types of beans and i'm sure you've seen it you've, you've you've mentioned you've seen it in lots of other places so that trend of alternate of uh, alternative agriculture of the niche products that tends to tie in with what you're saying. That's not a big company with a big plantation, but that's small individual landowners or co-ops who work in yeah. harmony with supermarkets. So you're right. You're right. You're right to highlight that. 
it's definitely a big trend. I'm not sure how that will be affected by coronavirus. Well, I feel very validated in my thinking by uh, everything you just mentioned. So I appreciate that. <laughs> That's what we're here that for, is... Mike. We're here to validate each other. Who cares about the listeners as long as you and I agree with each other? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think we can give our listeners some good insights. I mean, um, like, uh, you know, again, ag- agriculture is my favorite space along, you know, with with uh, some of the renewable energy that's out there. Um, but let's move right along. I do want to get into the, you know, again, one of the one of the big picture questions here uh, and probably one of the more significant in terms of of business and markets within Latin America. And this affects everyone all the way down to, you know, the small fi- farmer, miner, uh, everything from infrastructure projects um to to agribusiness and these co-ops as we we're mentioning and that is what is the future of chinese latin america relations after this and you know what what are some of you know basically if i had to ask you to as as i sometimes do to my guests like can you pull out your crystal ball a little bit for us and tell us what you see in terms of those relationships you know is it going to be business as usual uh, are we talking about you know restructuring of agreements and contracts um, what, you know, kind of what, what do you think are the, the listeners should know about the future of Chinese Latin American relations? Michael, I love these big picture questions because they allow me to make big, important sounding statements without actually <laughs> having to have too many technicalities or facts or detailed information. So it's great. Um, no, look, I, it's funny. As a magazine, we have written an awful lot about the relationship between China and Latin America. And our our general line has been, um, we we sometimes think that some Latin American people or governments are too naive in the way that they deal with China. You know, the US, and no offense, because you've obviously got an American accent, the US did did terrible things in Latin America in the the second half of the 20th century. You know, the, the US is responsible for tens of thousands of deaths, probably 100,000 in Central America, in, in, in supporting the dictatorships in the Southern Cone. The U.S. did lots of terrible things in, in Latin America, and that created this idea, you know, this anti-gringo, anti-Yankee sentiment. Um, this is now, wh- while all of those criticisms are valid, and while the U.S. did a lot of terrible things, um, I, I think that's made some Latin American governments and people too naive in the way they look at China. Um, you know, China, China is not altruistic. When China's propping up the Venezuelan regime by lending it billions of dollars, it's not doing it because it shares Maduro's, uh, in quotes, socialist principles. It's doing it for deeper strategic uh, reasons. So, so as, as a magazine, we've written about this a lot. But despite that portion, despite that warning, we have always been overall positive on China's entry into Latin America because we're investors. And the fact is, when you've got two superpowers and two big economies investing in Latin America, that boosts asset prices. It means that you're you're the owner of a Latin American mine or oil and gas project or agricultural project, you can sell to the US or you can sell to China and that boosts asset prices. So so we've um, we've been broadly positive on US-China, on on Latin American-China relations, always with that caveat that, that People should realize that, you know, China's uh, motives aren't always altruistic. Anyway, coming to, your, coming to the answer to your question, what's going to happen in the future? I think this is an incredible opportunity for China. 
Will China take it? I don't know. This is an incredible opportunity for China. In Ecuador, the, the sense here is palpable that Ecuador cannot deal with it on its own. And it, and it really can't. Ecuador can't deal with it on its own. And I'm sure a host of other small Latin American countries cannot deal with coronavirus on its own. Um, their health systems are, are overswamped. They don't have the financial resources. They won't be able to sustain the lockdown. They need outside help. They, like, well, like we mentioned earlier, they're, they're paying $12 a mask on the open market. They really can't, uh, they really can't handle this global crisis on their own. China, which in theory, according to the Chinese government, is already, is already recovering from coronavirus, China is in a unique position to help out uh, countries like Ecuador, to help out the smaller countries with medical supplies, with medical expertise. The Chinese should be experts at dealing with coronavirus because they were the first ones to go through it. This is a real opportunity for China to win friends and influence uh, people in Latin America. And not only is it a real chance for them to do that, this is probably the only lifeline that countries like Ecuador have. Sadly, it doesn't seem that the US is going to be in the position to help countries like Ecuador at least for another six months. Maybe I'm being too negative. So Since we're in the Ecuador, early stages of this, yes. You're in the earlier stages. You're in the earlier stages. So if Ecuador wants to... You're, you're in the earlier stages, and also I would say your government has other priorities, perhaps. Um, if, if Ecuador... You know, people criticize the US for losing focus on Latin America both the Obama administrations and the Trump administrations. So even before coronavirus, America w wasn't focusing that much on Latin America, perhaps. But anyway, the, so this is a big opportunity for China, but it's also a big opportunity for these small Latin American countries. When I speak to people here in Ecuador, they are, they are frustrated. I would say that they're feeling hopeless because they know that their governments alone cannot handle this. They are waiting on the outside world they're waiting on the outside world to develop a vaccine. They're waiting on the outside world to donate medical equipment. And they're waiting for the outside world to have an economic recovery so, exports, so Ecuador's exports can start selling again. You know, Ecuador relies on exports of oil, on exports of banana and exports of shrimp. And it needs global markets to be recovering for it to do that. So yeah, this, uh, so this is a real opportunity for China to increase uh, its role in Latin America. And if you forced me to make a prediction, um, I think that China is going to do it. I think that China is a shrewd geopolitical actor and it's going to take advantage of this opportunity. Because if some lowly journalist like myself can see the massive opportunity, I'm sure that the Chinese can do. Absolutely. And especially, I mean, a lot of their interests as far as commodities go, um, I mean, everything from food uh, to mining materials. I mean, again, they have a lot of those contracts tied up right there in Latin America. And it behooves both them and, and the region as a whole to collaborate and cooperate. And I, it is unfortunate, I have to admit, my, uh, my, uh, uh, my dear U.S. of A. Uh, is, is mostly kind of dealing with, with the crisis for itself, uh, within itself at this point. Um, now I think one thing that should be noted, it's kind of a, in the broader sense is that anything that has to do with, uh, like some of the commodities you mentioned, um, with, uh, mined, uh, materials as well as oil and gas, anything that has to do with energy, anything, and especially anything that has to do with food, 
Um, that shouldn't stop at any point. I mean, within the context of the global economy, it seems to me like uh, the demand for, um, you know, especially for food commodities is going to to stay relatively stable. Now, what those prices will look like, I, I, I couldn't predict. I don't know if anyone can at this point, um, unless you have a, a specific thought on that as well, James. No, 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 absolutely no thought. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with you. I think long term, and, th and this comes back to something I said earlier when we were talking about the opportunities, um, the long term economic viability of a lot of the assets in Latin America should be solid because it's based on, like, as you say, food, um, commodities, mining, oil and gas, and demand for that should, should be strong. Absolutely. It, I, maybe we'll see a little bit of a fallback in the, you know, in, in countries where they have a, a relatively strong manufacturing sector. But, um, you know, again, in some cases, they're going to be able to choose kind of between international um, commerce and trade with some of that manufacturing. In some cases, they'll be able to turn it more domestic, I think. Um, but I'm not sure. Any any other uh, thoughts you want to share with us, James? Um one before I go off on any tangents, and two, so we can go ahead and wrap up. <laughs> no, no, I think discussion. Been, I think this has been good. I think this has been exhaustive. Um, thanks. I would like to thank you. I would like to thank your rooster for his invaluable <laughs> contribution. His name is Ginger, by the way. I did not Ginger. give him that name. He was he was handed to me with that name, by the way. <laughs> Ginger the rooster. No, Mike. This is this has been good. And look, I, I would just like to add this caveat. Um, I believe in being frank with my readers and I will extend the same courtesy to your podcast listeners. No one really knows how this is going to play out at the moment. You know, it's, it's fun and it's interesting to make educated guesses, to get the perspective of people like you and myself who are on the ground in Latin America. But I have been, and, and so has everyone else, if they're honest, I've been blown away and caught surprised by the events of the last month. And, um, I suspect we'll be continued to be surprised by future events over the next couple of months. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm hoping that uh, I can get you back uh, here within the next few weeks. And um, I'm also hoping we can get a couple of other guests uh, that um, also look at their crystal balls in terms of geopolitics in the region and see if uh, we can get it uh, kind of have a nice review of, of everything that's been going on and, and see what uh, the outlook is. Um, Anyway. You can probably find someone who's nicer than me to give a better answer to inclusive capitalism question. <laughs> well, I think that uh, we'll have to have, we'll have to delve into that discussion a little bit more. Um, like I said, for for me, um, I I try to always pitch that as you know this isn't just about social responsibility. It's also ways to reduce your risk and ensure the continuity and the longevity of of certain investments right um like as a for instance for me i believe it's better to own shares in say a co-op than trying to buy all of that land and manage it yourself you know but that's just me um so they, anyway but we can get into all that another time uh james again i do appreciate you uh to all the listeners out there please please take a moment um, to look up LATAM Investor. That's LATAM-Investor.com, of which James McKeague is the managing editor. And I am 
def I am so grateful for uh, him being able to come on here and especially give us the insights from the ground where he is in Guayaquil and sort of these global insights that he and his team work on every day uh, for their publication. James, any other shameless plugs before we wrap up? No, no you've done a great job um, so of promoting awesome. our magazine. So thank you. Uh, Mike, a real pleasure speaking to you. And I look forward to reconnecting at some point in the future with you and your listeners. Absolutely. Be very safe and we'll talk again soon. Excellent. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Latin American Intersections. If you enjoy our podcast or find it insightful, please be sure to share with your friends and colleagues. Hasta la próxima. See you next time. A big thank you to Kasim Sultan of Sad Boy Music, who is working diligently to improve our audio as we develop our production techniques. Sad Boy Music offers competitive rates for recording, editing, mixing, mastering, music production, video editing, and motion graphic design. You can follow Sad Boy Music on social media at 5ADB0iMusic.